Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who knows um, in my toes that water is life. And, and on, on today's show, we're talking all things water. With us is the Executive Director of Freshwater, John Linkstein. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thanks. I appreciate you inviting me to be on your program. Well, you've got quite a background, so just tell us a little bit of, about yourself. Yeah, so I, I grew up here in the Twin Cities. Uh, my my uh, my place is in Roseville, where I grew up, and uh, I, I uh, stayed not far from home th- throughout my whole career. Although I've worked in all across Minnesota and throughout the Great Lakes, part of what I started with is just learning uh, learning about soil and water. When I attended the University of Minnesota St. Paul campus, got my background and my degree in soil and water conservation, and I worked at the at the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources for 25 years as a water regulator most of that time, but I also worked in some uh, some work for our trails and waterways around the state of Minnesota. Then I moved to the Department of Health for, for six years in uh, 2005, and I worked there on all sorts of uh, uh, environmental health uh, programs, safe food, uh, safe drinking water, clean indoor air, uh, a variety of other uh, programs to address risk uh, in the environment, human health risk in the environment. Ultimately, I w- worked in the commissioner's office there and, and was uh, lucky to work on the first pandemic, the H1N1 uh, novel influenza pandemic. Lucky and pandemic. Baby. Those two words don't usually go together. But <laughs> it, it was the baby pandemic. I the call baby it. pandemic, it was, right. It was not the one we're in right now. And then I ended my career at the Pollution Control Agency from 2011 until 2019, and that was my state government career, where I was commissioner of the of the MPC. And then in 2019, I joined uh, the Freshwater Society, a nonprofit organization here in the Twin Cities. Right, so 40 years in government, and then um, tell us a little bit about what Freshwater Organization is. So Freshwater Society was formed in the late 1960s by a group of concerned citizens and the University of Minnesota's College of Biological Sciences. They were looking at uh, how to address the emerging problems of uh, algae blooms and water pollution in lakes, uh, particularly focused in the West Metro area out around Lake Minnetonka. And our founder, Dick Gray, uh, established um, a laboratory, a research laboratory in cooperation with the University of Minnesota College of Biological Sciences that was the first private publicly funded uh, freshwater research laboratory. They published their own journal of their research. More than 100 uh, students uh, did their research on freshwater systems, ecology, uh, water chemistry, water quality, uh, all sorts of freshwater research between the years of about 1975 and 1990. And then uh, freshwater uh, moved on from being a, a research facility to being more of a policy and uh, citizen action organization in the, in the last 20 years. So our founders had the, had the idea that people with sound science were going to make the best decisions to uh, protect and restore clean water. And that's still our mission today. And, you know, the story behind Dick Gray, he goes and he, he looks and he sees this red algae and he asks, what is that? And why is that yeah. there? And then he asked the the other question is, what action do I need to take? Exactly. It, it, it's, it's still kind of the role model that we, we follow, which is 
people curious using science, using, you know, information that comes out of scientific research can uh, can learn and then take action in their neighborhoods and in their communities. And Dick was phenomenal in terms of his writing. He used to write a weekly column in the uh, Sun Sailor newspaper of the time. It was the Wyzetta Sun at that time. But he had a weekly column where he would talk about all kinds of things in nature. And he just was passionate about learning uh, how things work in the natural world and then writing about it. And so um, he, he was kind of the original uh, water steward from our perspective, one of those people, like you say, who said, well, now that I know something more about this, what should I do? And that's, that's one of our programmatic uh, goals is to help people, empower people uh, to take action based on what they've learned. And so let's talk about the state of Minnesota waters, because this is kind of a, it's hard to know some of this stuff. So talk about the state of Minnesota waters right now. So just just some basic facts. Um, you know, Minnesota has, uh, we're at the head of three continental watersheds. So 98% of the water that leaves our state, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, or whether it fell yesterday. The water that leaves our state leaves in primarily three different directions. One is down the Mississippi River, and about two-thirds of Minnesota, central Minnesota, southwestern Minnesota, drains out through that Mississippi River basin. And then up in the northeastern part of Minnesota, up by Duluth and the Arrowhead, that water goes out of our state through Lake Superior uh, and into the Atlantic Ocean through the St. Lawrence Seaway. And then the northwest portion of Minnesota drains to the north. It actually drains up through the Red River of the north into Lake Winnipeg and then ultimately into Hudson Bay and into the ocean from there. So we are truly a headwater state. Uh, there are 11,854 lakes in Minnesota, so our license plate is not lying. Uh, it's telling the truth, uh, but it could be a little bit better. It should say more than 10,000 lakes. Um, 11,854 lakes that are greater than 10 acres in size and average depth five feet or more. Uh, and then we have uh, about 2 million acres of wetlands remaining in our state. That's down from about 4 million uh, acres of wetlands before uh, Western settlement began. And we have massive volumes of groundwater resources uh, in our state. So the state of our waters is we are we are abundantly uh, blessed with water resources here in Minnesota. Unfortunately, our actions have impaired many of them, but not all. So there's some good news and bad news in the state of our water. One is about 50 56% of Minnesota's lakes, rivers, and watersheds have some level of water impairment compared against uh, the Clean Water Act water quality standards as defined by the U.S. EPA and the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. Now, one of the greatest impairments we have is mercury in our lakes and in our rivers and in our wetlands. And mercury is naturally occurring, but it's also present in larger volumes because of coal burning across uh, the, the globe. It's been deposited in our waters because of rainfall that carries mercury with it and acid rain. So, so coal-fired coal plants in China can affect Minnesota waters? Absolutely. That's, uh, that's one of the greatest arguments I had in the Capitol when I was commissioner is, so if we can't control mercury falling on us from China, should we do anything at all? And, of course, we should. We should control our own backyard first. That's one of our principles is take action first where you live. 
Um, and so, yes, there, the, the compounds that we find, uh, we're actually, there's a lot of emerging research going on now about plastics, uh, falling from the sky, microplastics coming down as, uh, uh, in, in air, through our air column in, in rainfall. And so there's a lot of information beginning, beginning to be researched about where does all the plastics in our waters come from. And so we're going to have a speaker this spring talking about microplastics. It should be a great, uh, a great for, event for us. But yes, mercury is our single largest contaminant, but there are many, many other contaminants ranging from nitrogen that comes from our lawns and our farms phosphorus from our roads and and also from farm fields and and decomposing organic matter uh road salt and chloride is a is an emerging significant challenge for water quality and water impairments in the state of minnesota so we have because of the way we live because of the way we impact our waters everything we do on the land everything we do as people has an impact on water and uh, we see that in the numbers that come from the Pollution Control Agency when they list 56% of our waters as impaired. Well, I want to take a deeper dive in this, especially the salts used in um, on roadways. Um, I mean, it's it's um, it's really a tragedy. I mean, I, I I I'm I'm outraged when I walk and I see the, all these big buckets of salts and people are throwing it down like, oh, I'm doing the right thing. I'm making sure people don't fall. And but it's but it's a problem. It really is. First of all, thank you for being outraged. We are too. Uh, but we also know that people are trying to uh, protect themselves, right? This is a this is a liability for a business owner, for example. If someone trips or falls or ha- uh, slips on the ice on their sidewalk or in their parking area, that could be a very expensive lawsuit that they face. So we have been working with a number of organizations trying to advance policy at the Capitol that would limit the liability of these companies so that they would not have to be faced with such concern over being sued. But that is what people are trying to balance, just like we're trying to balance safe roadways. Uh, but there are a lot of ways, as we know, that we could do a better job of reducing the salt use. First of all, salt doesn't work you know, when temperatures get below about 10 degrees or 5 degrees above Fahrenheit. It just isn't effective. So dumping more salt down when temperatures are really, really low doesn't have a have any impact at all. And that's how you find these large piles that people see on sidewalks. Is I often think people are just putting it down when it's too cold. And we don't need nearly the volume of salt to have the beneficial effect. And, and uh, you know, we've got a, a postcard on our website that people can look at. It's really just a few grains per uh, six square inches. You do not need a pile of salt to melt that ice. It gets it gets started and it loosens the, the salt or the ice from the, ro- the surface of the sidewalk or your driveway or the road. And then the key is shovel it. Use a scraper, use a shovel, use something to get maybe it off your driveway stuff. and don't keep dumping on there. Right. Um, well, we're going to be talking more about that later in the show, but we're about to take a break. Um, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, and we're talking with John Ling Stein, the Executive Director for Fresh Water. And, uh, John, before we went on break, we were talking about some of the problems um, that we know with uh, Minnesota's water. Um, I know um, every two years the Impaired Waters List um, summarizes polluted waters, um, and about 40% of Minnesota's lakes and streams uh, fail to meet basic water quality standards. Yep, and that is that is still a, a growing list, unfortunately. Although there are some successes that uh, have occurred over the last few years of of impairments being eliminated through local actions, so there is some light at the end of the tunnel. But it's really going to be a very very long road if we hope to restore clean water in all of the impaired waters that are listed across Minnesota. So let's talk about some of the some of the good things um, your organization and other people are doing to um, honor water as life. So um, you have Healthy Lakes and River Partnership. Um, tell us about that. The Healthy Lakes and River Partnership was built uh, around the idea that people taking action locally in lake associations, lake uh, lake um, uh, improvement districts, and elsewhere could really get uh, a better equipped through learning how to do community action uh, events whether that's shoreline cleanups or just educating themselves better about where does the lake, where does the water in our lake or our river come from? Uh, and we've added to that program uh, over the years. Now, recently, we added Adopt a River program, which is had a long history at the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources and then moved on from there to the Conservation Corps. We now house the program, and it's a really great way for people in communities to learn and take action about where does all of this um, trash along the shorelines of our lakes and rivers come from? Uh, so that's a new uh, and interesting approach that we've added, trying to help people locally uh, uh, advance their ideas about we want to do something to help protect or restore our, our lake or our river shoreline. Um, the the Adopt-A-River program and the Minnesota Healthy Lakes and Rivers Partnership provides tools for organizations to figure out how they could take some action. And the first step is really getting informed and trying to understand where the water comes from, where all the, you know, pollution comes from and how then to take action. So that's the premise of those programs is to equip people uh, to learn and, and, and then come together to take action. So um, in, uh, with the Adopt-A-River, um, 90,000 volunteers uh, picked up 6.5 million pounds of trash and did that in yeah, community. That, yeah, it's an amazing uh, history of of success. Paul Nordell, who was a friend of mine when I worked at the DNR and a co-worker, you know, was instrumental in, in starting this program. You might remember when, when we started seeing <clears throat> adopt a highway programs for mm-hmm. cleaning up the roadways. Paul thought, well, why not? Why not do the same thing for rivers? And, you know, it was a remarkably successful idea and it got funded by the DNR for many, many years. We've taken it in now under our wing and what our goal is is to help communities uh, take some pride in their resource and and get that action going. As you mentioned, the number of volunteer hours and the number of cleanups that have happened is remarkable. We just developed a new toolkit for people who want to do some river cleanup. It can be as simple as a section of shoreline on a lake in your in your neighborhood your community or you know a section of river so we've got some new resources that we're rolling out for people and another thing another opportunity is to be a minnesota water steward so tell us about that program 
Yeah, the Minnesota Water Steward program is is something that we've had uh, here at Freshwater for about seven years now. And more than 500 people have been trained in how to become a water steward, much in the way that people have learned about gardening. And you, you know that the University of Minnesota runs the Master Gardeners Program. Our water stewards, our Minnesota Water Stewards Program, was built on sort of the same model of equipping people with a deeper knowledge of how water uh, moves and, and exists in the environment, so sort of the science of water, the water quality, water ca- uh, quantity, how flows happen, and then also about the policy around water. Who who controls what? Who What does the city uh, have responsibility for? What does the county have responsibility for in the state, DNR, and, and so on and so forth? So water stewards commit uh, a full year of time to working on learning and then developing a project that they will implement in their local community. And that's been exciting to see what people have, have taken on you as know, projects. Yeah, one of my neighbors did this, and they showed up in the next-door neighbor out, next-door, the whatever, national night out, and, you know, we were learning about water, and so we're doing a water garden, um, a rain garden, and so you're going to see this in our yard, and if you want more information. So it was really a people-to-people thing about um, having a relationship with our local watershed. Yeah, it's a great. It, I'm really glad to hear that that happened because that's our that that is the essence of the program is people helping people, uh, and the stewards become you know more experts. Uh, they're not you know they don't, would never want to be called an expert because they don't they don't have the formal title or training that others do, but they do work with their neighbors. And we've seen projects. We just years ago we began doing art for water community-based art installations. One of our artists, uh, Gina O'Cook from uh, uh, Brooklyn Center, is a great uh, storm storm drain stenciler, and he, art, I should say, storm drain artist. And he's created some beautiful artwork around the uh, storm drains to remind people that this water goes to the creek, in his, in his case. And it's just a fun and beautiful way to get people to learn about how water impacts them through community art, storytelling, uh, music. We've had a couple of songwriters take on, uh, take the program or go through the program. And like you said, rain gardens, rain barrels, water conservation, just lawn, better use of irrigation systems in our homes and businesses has been another focus of the water stewards program. So it's really been a, a great tool to help people learn uh, how they can apply what they uh, maybe didn't know before and then take action on it, and about 500 people have done it. We just launched our, our cohort for 2022. About 25 people are going through the program this year, and next in the fall, they'll be reporting on their successes. And so I want to make sure we cover some basic things that uh, people can do in their yards to um, to um, honor the water. So um, three things that you have mentioned is using native plants, reducing or eliminating eliminating um, fertilizers and pesticides, and limiting the amount of lawn or turf areas. Exactly. Those are all those are all really positive steps because um, the one thing that you know we 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 don't often mention when you think about um, uh, our lawns and water is the energy that's required to move all this water around. Every drop of water that we, uh, that comes out of our taps or out of our hoses is being, uh, pumped out of the ground or pumped out of the river, moved around, treated, and it's an incredibly energy intense, uh, 
process. And so the first thing we can do to help water is reduce the demand for it. Just use less water. And in our lawns is one of the places where we see the most waste, some of the more wasteful uses of water. But there are many in your own home as well. But we can talk about that later. But I think, you know, that's why we, we focus on reducing the need for turf, increasing the amount of uh Native plant materials, those are going to be more resilient. They're not going to need any uh, lawn watering or irrigation. They can survive well during periods of drought. That's our best way to reduce the demand for water in our yards. And then just simply reduce the amount of grass. Bluegrass is a very water-consumptive um, turf and re- needs a lot of water to survive. Now, there are ways to live with turf that is less uh, demanding on our water, and there are options for that. And the University of Minnesota Extension Office has some That's great. That's great. Ideas. And I'm going to pipe in here because foodscaping is so helpful. So, I mean, in, in my front yard, I got I like this, but I got a peach tree with some raspberries underneath, uh, American chestnut, three hazelnuts, plums, apples, nut spraying, blueberries, gooseberries, box gardens. These are better for water and better for pollinators and better for each other. So um, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk more uh, with uh, John Stein, John Linkstein with Freshwater when we return. You're listening to AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Rain into a paper cup, they slither wildly as they slip away. Welcome back to uh, Food Freedom Radio. We're talking with John Linkstein, the Executive Director of Freshwater. And uh, before we went on break, we were talking about some basic things we can do in our yard, um, uh, use native plants, reduce or eliminate uh, fertilizers and pesticides, limit the amount of uh, lawn or turf areas. Also, there's capturing your stormwater. So why is that important to capture the stormwater? So capturing your stormwater is like, you know, when, when many people think about stormwater, they think of it as something that's just lost or wasted, but it's a resource. If you can capture it in a rain barrel, use it in your gardens, use it on your, on your lawns, it's really a resource for you. So capturing it, first of all, reduces the amount of runoff, meaning how much water goes down our storm sewers and, and collects things from our roadways, because that water that hits the street is picking up all kinds of contaminants, whether we know it or not. Streets are full of uh, materials, organic compounds and things that come off of our vehicles that we just want to reduce runoff from our landscapes in general. If we can conserve the water where it falls, then the plants can do a better job of taking it up. So rather than having to add water from our from our faucets, from our hoses, let's let's conserve the water. So some some of the things that you can do there, and and it's being done more and more in Minnesota, is just reuse um, com- on a community scale, uh, both Target Field and uh, the Allianz Field where the where the Loons play, and the St. Paul Saints Stadium all have a water reuse system built into their uh, lawn irrigation. So even though they have you know all that turf grass. They're conserving the water off their stadium and their parking lot and putting it back is irrigation water. So what that does is just lower the demand for water on our community systems and keeps the water where it falls. So much healthier for our our ecosystems and for our um, water systems. And so do we have a problem with aquifers being depleted? 
there are some places where in Minnesota where aquifers are being depleted. Overall, Minnesota still has very uh, abundant water supply in our groundwater, but we are seeing uh, downward trends in our in some of our aquifers in some places. They're isolated. The DNR has some great data on that, but our groundwater is like should be thought of as your as your family savings account. You really don't want to use it if you don't have to, uh, because it's there as a as a you know first of all groundwater supports our ecosystems. The shallow groundwater that's near the surface helps sustain river flows all across Minnesota. It also is part of what creates the habitat for you know so many uh, uh, species of fish and wildlife are those flows and those lake levels that are supported by the groundwater so we really want to conserve the water that's near the surface and sometimes when we when we pump water from deeper we're actually drawing water from the surface aquifers down so we want to protect it's just so many reasons to reduce and and make wise use of the water that comes out of the sky and uh, flows down the river. Those are our best our best sources of water. Uh, groundwater is not uh, overall threatened in our state, but there are some isolated areas where there are risks, yes. And so let's talk now um, about agriculture. This is Food Freedom Radio, agriculture and groundwater. Um, so one of the things we hear a lot about is nitrate concentrations. What does that mean? So nitrate is uh, applied to farmland. It is used in... Uh, fertilizing corn primarily uh soybeans do not need nitrogen they make their own uh nitrogen uh, but nitrate is the product it, it moves in water so when nitrogen is a- applied to fields whether it's a fo- in the form of anhydrous ammonia or another form of nitrogen uh when when it's ex- when water comes in contact with it it will form a nitrate and the nitrate then moves with the water down through the soil especially the excess nitrate so what what we see in groundwater and in farm country is excessive amounts of nitrate that can't be used by the plants are finding their way increasingly to groundwater so that leads to this nitrate uh increasing concentrations of nitrate in in water under our farm in farm country in minnesota and nitrate the, is a concern because it is a health risk. Having nitrate in your drinking water uh, is something that is very unsafe for young children, especially infants. And then, I mean, that also uh, can flow down the Mississippi River and ends up creating the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Exactly. So it, it doesn't end at the groundwater. That that shallow groundwater, it also finds its way to our streams, the ditches and the rivers. And Minnesota is one of the most significant contributors of nitrate pollution to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and we are, you know, continuing to see those concentrations uh, sustained over time. So it's a it's not only a you know a risk to our groundwater; it's a risk in our rivers that are here in Minnesota because increasing nitrate concentrations are in our own rivers, but also then traveling down the Minnesota River to the Gulf, as you say. So, in 2018, uh, Freshwater did a study: Barriers to Progress in the Journal of Soil and Water Conservation, um, which was printed in September and October of 2018. Um, and so, you talk to farmers, and I I really took to heart one sentence from there: is that uh, uh, most commonly, the farmers mention that there is a negative perception that uh, there's a false belief that farmers just don't care about the water. And that's just simply not true. Right. It's, it's a, I have, I've met and, and 
walked fields with many, many farmers in my career. And it, they're faced with a tremendous challenge about the way that agriculture is structured. The whole system of growing and, and, you know, making a living from your crops is now dependent upon these large monoculture kind of farming practices. And so what we're really, we're really interested in regenerative agriculture, ways of growing food and crops that require far less nutrients and really protect the soil's health in a more effective way. One of the projects we're working on is with a, a regenerative poultry farmer in the Northfield area, and we're helping him study uh, what happens when you convert traditional farmland, row crop agriculture farmland, to uh, free-range chicken uh, grazing and and um, what happens to soil health properties, what happens to water quality properties. Carrie Jennings on our team is our lead researcher on that, and she's pulled together a great team of folks that are working on that farm to see. Let's make sure we understand just how uh, this this practice of raising yeah. chickens in this so regenerative is, way is, is going to help. That, that might be uh, Reggie, or are you talking to regenerative farms? They're going to be yeah. on Food Freedom Radio in about two weeks. And um, yeah, I, love, I, love, yeah. I love his book, Green Man. Um, yeah. He was on the show talking about that. But um, And so uh, tree range, you plant hazelnuts, and the chickens can um, hide under the hazelnuts, so the chickens are much happier. <laughs> yep, <laughs> and they, then the farmer has two products, has hazelnuts and chickens. And it's a, right. it's a completely different type of system than the monoculture that is really um, uh, hurting our water. Exactly. And it's exciting to see how he has thought through the system dynamics of it, how farmers can succeed. Because what you heard in that report we did in 2018 is farmers, you know, they know they need a successful system to stay in business, but they don't often know what that's going to look like. Um, and so we, we've tried to feature, uh, there's a couple of farmers down in the Minnesota River Valley that have worked on um, how to kind of convert their row crop farm to more mixed uses, animals on some of the soils where there's higher risk of erosion, where they can just hay the land and have the animals graze there. So there's a lot of interesting uh, learning going on in the farm community. But that, that attitude that farmers are not trying to, they, they honestly do not want to pollute the water, but they don't know how to get out of the system they're in. And so that, that report um, from 2018 had a lot of um, good um, um, roadmaps, if you will. So uh, one of the big problems is there's an absent, absence of markets for um, alternative crops. Um, oats, Correct. peas, help, hemp, alfalfa. Big forces that work there economically and trying to find ways to produce new uh, crops Kernza and uh, some of the work being done at the University of Minnesota and by other growers and other agricultural producers, I think that's where the where the next uh, success model lies. But converting these systems is really the trick. As you say, finding markets for these crops is very difficult, and that's where consumers come in. That you is know, where, we, and, yeah. We make those choices, and we need to stand together if we want different choices. Right, and getting out of the blame and shame culture and to just connect with each other. I mean, it is tough. I mean, we we all get our calories this way, and so how do we how do we create something different when, and and you know, with so many um, 
mutual crises going on, it's 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 hard to know the right action. I had a, a wonderful uh, a Deborah from a Monarch pro- project on um, about a month ago, and so they're working at creating products made out of milkweed. Um, yeah. Including bedding yeah. made out of, you know, with 5% milkweed, which is a nice fiber. So you're planting that milkweed and then you're helping the monarchs at the same time. So this innovation is, is really fun. And I, you know, if anyone knows of other suggestions, I'd love to do shows on it because it's just, we, we need to um, create hope and action. I love that. And it's one of our principles at Freshwater that we're not interested in. Uh, blaming people for the choices they've made, but we are interested in forming new partnerships and ways of thinking about the world and the choices that have to be made in more creative and sustainable ways based on good research. Another interesting topic is just how we could all make better use of compost. And I know that you probably have had people talk about composting in your home mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a topic, but the more compost that we can organize and collect at a community scale, we're going to find better and better soil health if we can put those uh, that composted material into more places on our roadsides, when, when the highway department, when MnDOT or, or our cities do their road projects, and so many other uh, opportunities like that. So it's a really great way to focus on rather than people being blamed or ashamed of the decisions that have been made. Let's work together on better solutions. And, and there's some really wonderful synergies because if you're improving the soil quality, that's actually helping with carbon capture and climate change. Exactly. And, and you know, fewer fewer trips down the road for, for garbage trucks, fewer things being burned in the incinerator, fewer things going into the landfills, which are glorified, you know, holes in the ground that have you know, been accepting our waste now for generations. We really need to get out of this culture of uh, over overproducing waste. And so how do we protect uh, both Minnesota waters and have a fi- vital farming sector? And we can have both. Yeah, I think that's the trick. That's, that's the question that I think the farming community is grappling with as well as, as all the environmental and, uh, and folks in communities that depend on farming you know you think about you think about the communities across minnesota that grew up and have sustained their economic uh, growth and vitality through farming they're also they need to have a seat in that conversation as well uh yeah and so i mean there's there's some small stuff or like a gps nozzle for um better irrigation it's it's an expensive thing for a farmer to buy and so how do we make uh water friendly agriculture um, economically viable for us. Yeah, it's a it's it's a trick. It it you know the the research around genetically modified uh, crops is is very controversial. But there are things that have happened that make you know uh, the the demand for water less critical for some for some forms of crops. And so if we could find you know a, a viable alternative crop and cropping systems that would really uh, meet a market need and a demand. That's the trick, like you say. But, if but I actually betting- think the trick is the trick is more of being humble, and I, that's where I, I have a lot of suspicion around some of that high techer stuff. I mean, uh, the the idea that technology is going to come. Um, you know, uh, I can't remember his name, but he said artificial manure was the biggest consequence. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And so, 
how do we create um, uh, agriculture based on the um, intelligence of the natural world by a sense of reverence? And I think that sense of reverence can create different economic systems. But I'm a little bit of an optimist. We're going to take a break. <laughs> we'll be Absolutely. back. We'll talk, we'll talk a little bit more. We're talking with John Linkstein with uh, Fresh Water. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and with us is John Linkstein, the Executive Director of Freshwater. Um, and John, when we're when we want to break, I want to talk a little bit about climate change. How is climate change affecting Minnesota's waters? Well, one one thing that's been dramatic, it, and and there's several ways. First of all, it, it is impacting Minnesota's lakes by increasing temperatures of the water. So as the as the uh, air temperature has uh, grown warmer overall, uh, we are seeing increasing average water temperatures in Minnesota lakes. Even Lake Superior, one of the coldest freshwater bodies in the world, 20% uh, the Great Lakes is 20% of the world's freshwater resources. But, but you look at the fact that even Lake Superior has seen a real increase in its average temperature over the last 10 to 15 years. So increasing water temperatures is a challenge for Minnesota's lakes, especially those that have um, shallow depth overall. You're going to see increasing algal blooms. You're going to see increasing uh, rooted aquatic plant growth in in those increasing water temperatures. And so that's one way that uh, the whole ecosystem is impacted by changing air temperatures. Increasing air temperatures in Minnesota is affecting our lakes. Uh, another area of impact, and this is uh, true in, in across uh, the west, central, southwestern, and southern half of the state, uh, overnight uh, low temperatures. Um, you may have heard many climatologists, Mark Seeley, Heidi Roop, others have have talked about the phenomenon that our overnight low temperatures during the growing season. So the, the, the air temperature is higher overnight now on average by about a degree and a half Fahrenheit or more. And so what happens when you have this overnight warmer air, you get more evaporation, more transpiration off the crops, and that creates uh, another effect of sort of increasing the intensity and severity of rainfall because there's just more moisture in the air to begin with, which leads to uh, a host of uh, sort of localized intense rainfall uh, events. And so those are some of the things that we, we know are happening. And obviously with increased air temperatures in farm country and, and in urban areas, you just see the demand for water go up um, because – there's still about 100 billion gallons of water a year used for irrigation in Minnesota. Uh, and there's uh, demands that come from uh, people who live in cities and, and in homes when there's increased temperatures. So those are the things, you know, from a water perspective that are that are some, you know, just a partial list of the impacts that we notice. Hey, excuse me, you had an article, too, about what um, what climate change means for our mental health and well-being. Right. And it is that is, you know, when when you think about, uh, you know, in recreation and use of waters and you see people's 
use and, and outdoor enjoyment of, of the natural environment is impacted by uh, lower water flows. For example, you know, think about going to Minnehaha Falls and not seeing water go over the falls. Now, that happens sometimes, but, you know, as a general rule, if, if we have increasing temperatures and imp- increasing impacts, uh, we're going to see times when that happens. Overall, one of the things that's happening with, with Minnesota, though, is we're getting wetter with climate change, larger flows, but they're coming in really different ways than they used to. Not so much the sustained kind of smaller rainfalls, but really bigger and more intense rainfall. So it's going to alter how people experience the natural world, and that's where uh, it can just create stress. Also, if you rely upon water for your for your life, uh, if you're farming or if you are, uh, uh, you know, a tree farmer or you depend on uh, tourism that depends on water and, and you don't know what the water's going to be like, what the water quality is going to be like, that's stress. And that means mental health challenges for people. So we started this story talking about um, Dr. Uh, uh, Dick Gray, who started uh, the what became Freshwater. He saw a problem and he stepped up to try to see what he can do. And with so many problems that we have in our environment right now, how do we find something hopeful, some action that we can take? Well, first of all, I would I would give people the fact that, you know, we are uh, able to learn more quickly because Minnesota has probably one of the most resilient uh state governments in the nation in terms of gathering information about our our water and about our environment and about our systems. So we have a really strong position to start our conversations about the future. So I think that's a hopeful sign that we know we have assessed the water quality in Minnesota in every one of our major watersheds. Many other states have not taken that action. They, With the benefit of the Clean Water Fund that we have used to assess watersheds and take action on how to restore water quality. Minnesota is in a really good position. So I'm hopeful because of that. I know, and because I know that people who live here, more than 80% of the people rate water, clean, safe water, as one of their top five values for being a Minnesotan. So So we know that our neighbors care. Right. So we all do care. So uh, freshwater.org, John Linkstein. And what do you see for the next 50 years? We have just a little time left. You know, the challenges before us are really about climate change, how, how we are going to sustain our, our economic systems in the face of water, increasing water demands. And we're going to have to change those systems to be more sustainable, reduce the demand and find ways to put, uh, to, to lessen our impact on the landscape. Otherwise, we're going to continue to see degrading water quality and impacts on our groundwater systems. So we're going to have to act smarter more effectively and i think that happens locally when it happens locally that's our that's our mission is that people acting locally are going to make the greatest impact and agreeing locally is how they're going to change systems right right so we we can change systems we act locally we do what we can uh thank you for listening to food freedom radio and thank you john Linkstein, for uh, joining us uh, freshwater.org thanks my pleasure